I think of that way with Providence as well, a team that they've been cutting it close a lot with regards to driving in traffic. They're good at driving in traffic, but you want to be avoiding cutting it close to the last minute, if at all humanly possible. And now you wind up drawing the number one team with regards to points scored on a per possession basis. Welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and this week I'm joined by college basketball savant, Greg Hoops-Peterson. Greg is the host of the Greg Peterson Experience and betting the bracket on VEASAN, the Vegas Stats and Information Network, and Greg's also the host of the Coast to Coast Hoops podcast, which is also part of the VEASAN family of podcasts. We dig into Greg's March Madness betting approach covering point spreads, totals, and futures, and we also touch on Greg's tips for bracket strategy, including his thoughts on the top contenders this year, plus potential bracket busters and Cinderella stories. Beyond the big dance, we also get into the NIT and the College Basketball Invitational, because one thing we can take to the bank is that if there's betting opportunity anywhere in the college basketball world, odds are Greg's putting in the work and we can benefit from his insight. One housekeeping note before we cut to the conversation, if you live in an area where wagering is legal and want to kill two birds with one stone, go ahead and sign up for a sportsbook via any of the links at the bottom of the Props and Hops landing page on Dimers.com. That way you can get down on some edges throughout March Madness and support this show along the way. You can find a link to that Props and Hops landing page in these show notes. And now... Enjoy this week's conversation with the man they call Hoops, Greg Peterson. Greg Peterson, welcome to Props and Hops. It is great to be aboard with you, my friend. It is the best time of year, and I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm a lover of sports. I'm a lover of college basketball. Love making some money on bets and love me a good beverage as well. So great to be on with you. Sounds like we're in store for a fun conversation. And as listeners are hearing the conversation, we will be on the eve of everything tipping off. I know you're both a fan and an expert when it comes to this stuff. I mean, there's a reason you're known as Greg Hoops Peterson. So to that end, just to kick this off, I'd I'd love to get some context on what you think when it comes to any similarities and differences in knowing versus betting on sports. I feel like a lot of people might know everything about every team and struggle to find value on the betting boards. Some people might not know the name of one player in a league, but they just know how the numbers work and treat it like a market and can succeed as betters. A lot of overlap where people like yourself, you know a lot about you know every player on however many college basketball teams there are. You can school me on that. But also fusing that knowledge of teams and the sport itself with some betting insight. What does that combination look like for you? I think the biggest thing for me was I always have been someone that has been in tune with college basketball. Even when I was a kid, I used to look up to Joe Lenardi, his bracketology, and you know, I am someone that I always would study all those little schools because when you wind up doing bracketology, 
you wind up getting the same amount of points for getting correct the one seed as you do like those random 14, 15 seeds. So that means that you need to spend an equal amount of time taking a look at your Dukes, your North Carolinas, Wisconsin, what have you, as you need to taking a look at like the MEAC and who's going to wind up winning that conference. So I do feel like that wound up helping me out a little bit when it comes to little bit more sports betting and I started out a little bit more in traditional radio and I did wind up using sports betting a little bit when I was just getting out of college be able to pay a couple bills UT Arlington back in the day made me a lot of money when Scott Cross was there so they were very kind to me and I think the biggest thing for me just being able to go from being a casual sports fan knowing about these teams and actually knowing how to bet on these teams as well is just the realization that you're not betting on teams, but you're betting on numbers. And the number is just so important. Knowing how to line shop and just getting in tune with things like utilizing a Don Best screen, knowing sort of when the numbers wind up moving, because a lot of times the best numbers that you're able to get when it comes to betting on college basketball during the regular season, that's my time, 4 to 5 a.m. Pacific time. Eastern time, 7 to 8 a.m., because you'll notice that a lot of markets wind up moving at that time. So I do think that it's just so important to know the timing of the bets and know that, hey, even though you think that a team is going to win by double figures, you know what? You probably want to be separating your fandom from it and take a look at it just from a perspective of the numbers themselves. All right. I love that as a framework for this conversation. Clearly, you know what you're talking about. And I was going to say odds are the audience listening to this conversation already quite familiar with your work. And after the answer to that previous question, definitely a lot of familiarity for people who might even be hearing from you for the first time. But I'm wondering, since this is a first time for the two of us connecting on props and hops, for any of the unacquainted listeners or people who could use a refresher, could you maybe give a bit more on your background, perhaps an elevator pitch when it comes specifically to the betting side of things and your experience in that realm? I actually got started with regards to sports betting when I was in college. It was good old UW Oshkosh. And back in the day, yeah, good old five dimes that would post up like college football lines. I was over there at UW Oshkosh. We finally wound up getting a notable college football game. We wound up playing ironically enough against South Dakota state. I was thinking, Hmm, I wonder if there's a betting line on this game because I mean, I always knew that Las Vegas, they always did a good job of being able to handicap these things. I'm just there like, how badly do they think poor little UW Oshkosh is going to get crushed today? I wind up going on. I see that five dimes winds up having a line. Guess what the line was? UW Oshkosh catching 45 points. Exactly what I'm thinking is, man, UW Oshkosh is not going to win this game all right. I don't want to try to put down like 20 bucks to try to win my own private island or anything like that. But you know what? I think that they can hang within 45 points here. How about if I wind up putting in $50? Turns out I learned that juice at that time was minus 120. I now know to try to get that down to minus 110. So that's one of those you live and you learn things. But with that said, I want to put down $60 to win 50. And before I could wind up placing the bet, I was notified, oh, the line has moved. I'm just like, oh, man, I'm sure that they're lowering that line on UW Oshkosh. No, 46 and a half is now what they were catching. And the good news is it was never a sweat because South Dakota State did not wind up scoring 45 points in that game, 38 to three. It had me hooked immediately. It's like, oh, boy, I just turned $60. Now I've got $110. But on a little bit of baseball, because when I actually – am in the offseason. I do a little bit of baseball as well. Made a little bit of money there, just taking a couple puss 
money line underdogs in that sport. And I thought, you know what? Maybe this could be a way in which I'm able to utilize this, make a little bit of money because coming up in media, it can be a little bit difficult. I wound up spending a year out in Nashville, Tennessee, and a year in Portland, Oregon before I wound up coming out to Las Vegas, getting a full-time job. So I certainly did need to supplement my income because when you're working on commission, when you're working part-time, you do need a little bit of that. And sports betting really did allow me that opportunity, being able to get a little bit more in tune with it, being able to just identify, hmm, when it comes to these things, it sort of is human nature in which a lot of people, they think that either team A, player A, they're either the greatest thing ever or the worst thing ever. And as sports betters, as we know, the biggest thing is trying to be able to keep an even head, being able to realize, okay, it can be somewhere in the middle of the greatest and the worst thing ever. And that really was able to help me out a little bit, got me a little bit of money. So that way I was able to survive and be able to continue to work in this industry, then came out to Las Vegas, was able to learn from some of the best in the business. Like I was doing a little bit of producing at the time for Brent Musburger. And then when I was getting into college basketball, someone at VEASAN told me, hey, you know what? You should post some of these some of these lines that you wind up getting. You should post up some of your picks on Twitter because you've got some great information. You'll probably be able to build a little bit of a following. That gentleman's name was Matt Humans. So he was actually... What wound up giving you guys all the picks that you wind up seeing now, it has evolved from there because I used to just wind up giving up straight up picks and everything like that. But I realized when you wind up posting up picks like the night before, you wind up pounding a bunch of openers. Hey, you know what? Not everyone has the ability to be able to get those numbers. You've got a lot of people that they're following your feed and they work a nine to five desk job. They do very noble, noble things. They work as teachers. They work as doctors. They just want to have a little bit of action on the game. So I wound up starting to do exactly what I wound up doing with regards to pounding my openers. And that's that I always have a number in my head that I want to be taking. I do my handicapping before I wind up seeing any numbers coming out. And that's where the spreadsheet comes from. It is exactly how I wind up handicapping these games because as I said a few minutes ago, it's a case of which you are betting numbers and not really teams. And that's what I wound up doing really over the last year and a half or so. And I found that it's been relatively successful because that way, if you're someone that you like to pound openers, boom, the information is all there. We're able to go at it right away. And you know what? If you wind up seeing a line move by three points, rather than taking a look at someone and being like, oh, you want to blank five points. Now the line is at eight. Well, you know where I still stand. If I wind up seeing the line at nine, still a little bit of value. If it's at six, then you know what the boat has sort of passed. And I think that that's just so important in this industry to not just take any number, but to shop for the best number because you could be the world's greatest analyst. You could be the world's greatest handicapper when it comes to these games. But if you're not able to get those numbers, that is something that is just going to lead to you having a tough time being able to profit. When it comes to trying to get the best of the number and making a line for every game like you do, Looking at March Madness, how would you describe your approach to betting the tournament when this is the time of year that pretty much all eyes in the sporting universe are on this tournament? Um, so I imagine there are some Saturdays, you know, late fall, early winter, where you can find value all over the place, betting schools that most people have never heard of. But when you look at the tournament, how would you describe your overall betting approach once we get down to the field of 64? 
My biggest thing was if I wound up seeing value that I liked on selection Sunday, just take it because those numbers, they move and they move rapidly. I was doing a lot of the work over there at VEASAN for their selection Sunday sort of special. And I just noticed that you wound up seeing such big differentials with a lot of these numbers. Like you take a look at that Gonzaga versus Georgia State game. DraftKings wound up opening that number at 27.5. The South Point opened it up five and a half points worse. You have to realize when you wind up seeing those discrepancies in the market, okay, there's probably going to be a little bit more of an evening out. It's probably not going to be the 27 and a half that DraftKings wound up setting. It's probably not going to be the 22 and a half that you wound up being able to see with the South Point. Try to find that number that is best for you. And I wound up picking the number more around 21, 21 and a half personally. So I said, you know what? What is the best number that I can get? Jump in there because it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle of the 22, 22 and a half that we were seeing at the South Point and seeing the 27 and a half that we were seeing at DraftKings. Just realizing that there's big differentials. It's likely going to be coming in the middle and deciding which end of the spectrum is closer with your numbers, I think is so big. And then on top of that, just being able to gauge teams that they do have a little bit of injury information out there. Teams that have some question marks like in Arizona that has a question mark currently with Kirk Kreese. If you wind up seeing the photo of his like, it looks like something out of like a horror film. It's absolutely terrible. So you want to be taking note of some of those things, realizing that that could cause a little bit of a move in the market. But I really do think that when it comes to March Madness, being able to hit a lot of those openers. And if you want to missing the boat in the round of 64, have no fear. It's going to be the same way when it comes to the sweet 16 round of 34 elite eight, list goes on and on that you are going to find some differentials early on in the market because there's a lot of books that now they actually want to be first rather than when it's more towards conference play, non-conference play, where you wind up having books be a little bit lazy with it because they're more concerned with football. Now I think is a very good time to be able to pound those openers and be able to get some good value with those opening lines. I think that's a reassuring way to frame it for a lot of people listening who may not have your insight when it comes to seemingly every player on every team and the knowledge that powers the way you handicap games. That's one thing. But for somebody who just has access to a few accounts, you know, maybe they see one book open at 27, another book open at 22. It's telling you one of those numbers is probably a decent bit off. And if you can just try to work the market that way without necessarily putting in all the time. If you don't have it to handicap every player and every team, there can still be plenty of value. And like you said, uh, that's pretty much the ship has sailed for the first round. But once we get to the round of 32 and each round thereafter, still a way to approach it for a lot of betters. And beyond sides, when it comes to totals on that VEASAN Selection Sunday special, I believe I recalled you mentioning looking under more often than not with a lot of totals. Um, maybe that's changed in the past few days. But in general, when you mentioned that you tend to look toward unders once we get to the tournament in this big of a stage, are there any reasons why that might be the case year over year? I think that it's just a little bit of human nature in general. The stakes are higher in these games and these are 18 to 23-year-old kids. They're going to be feeling the nerves a little bit. And the first thing to wind up going on you when it comes to nerves is really the jump shooting. Because when it comes down to it, it doesn't necessarily cause you to be too nervous when you're like pulling in a rebound. You're putting up your hands on defense in the post or anything like that. But when it comes to jump shooting, when it comes to unfamiliar surroundings as well, because that's very big. You're going to see quite a few of these games that are played in football stadiums. We notice it every single year. I have no idea how. I have no idea why. But 
Whenever guys wind up going to Madison Square Garden, you will end up seeing that in the Big East tournament. Unfortunately, I don't think MSG has any of the NCAA tournament games this year, but just teams wind up cratering from there. I still remember when Tennessee went 6 of 40 from three-point range in that venue, but it just feels like when you've got unfamiliar surroundings, you've got a lot of travel time, the first thing that winds up going on you is a jump shooting just because you do have a little bit of a better, a little bit of a worse backdrop. You do wind up having your legs come out from you a little bit as well because it's been a long season for these guys. A lot of these guys, when it came to conference tournaments, they had to play three games in three days, in some cases, four games in four days. So I do think that that's the, really the first thing that winds up going on you. And we do notice that teams wind up slowing things down a little bit as well. If you're in a three-point game with a minute left to go, you want to do everything humanly possible to try to get the best shot possible to be able to advance rather than just taking like some quick possession and then perhaps winding falling down two possessions. And then once again, nerves wind up getting back to you as well. So I think that those are big reasons why I take a look more at unders this time of year. When I hear you explain that, I, I kind of think of four different buckets, those being nerves, uh, players being a little bit fatigued this late in the season, unfamiliar sight lines, and then tempo slowing down at times when the heat really ratchets up late in some of these close games. And that all checks out to me logically. I'm wondering from your standpoint, well, with all the handicapping you do, being in Vegas and being so close to the betting market, um, on one hand, it makes all the sense in the world to me. And on the other hand, I feel like if it makes that much sense to somebody like me who doesn't even bet a lot of college basketball, um, would that not already be priced into the line? How often are you finding that factors like that aren't properly priced in? And, and how often are you actually indeed finding value looking under from a betting standpoint in some of these games? I will say, I think that bookmakers, even over the last five years, I would say, because this is really my fifth March Madness out here in Las Vegas, I feel like bookmakers have done a better job of being able to shade down these totals, but you're still able to find value on unders because we know this. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be coming to Las Vegas. If you're out there in other jurisdictions, there's going to be a lot of people going to places like Atlantic City to be able to watch a first and second rounds of the NCAA tournament. And those people that are flying in from like my home state of Wisconsin coming down to Las Vegas, they're not flying out being like, oh boy, this total of like 120 in San Diego State versus Creighton, we're taking the under. We're going to be rooting for a whole bunch of shot clock violations. Hopefully, Matt Bradley just throws up a whole bunch of bricks and we get some sort of a 40 to 36 ugly slobber knocker. That is not the case at all. So I think that it is one of those cases in which you wind up having the public bet a lot with regards to these college basketball games. And I know that there's a big narrative that books don't wind up changing their numbers too much with regards to public betting. And typically with regards to college basketball, that is very true during the season. I feel like the exception, and you're able to speak to this as well, when it comes to the Super Bowl, really any action is really going to be causing this. These are the sorts of events in which just any action is going to be moving the line just because it is this time of year. You're going to be getting in a whole bunch of bets. If you're just getting absolutely hammered on one side, you aren't going to want to have overly much liability. And I mean, you know this with regards to just the way that the bets wind up coming in when you wind up getting a whole bunch of people that are betting on the over and it doesn't wind up moving too much, that could be a good sign for you as well. Well said. When you mentioned the Super Bowl, I was just starting to have that thought, you know, sometimes when the public money can just stack up like a tidal wave, it can create some unique betting scenarios. And this is the time of year when that may be the case in college basketball. And one more angle where that can apply beyond sides and totals 
I think you've shared a lot of good insight everywhere I've heard you recently when it comes to futures versus money line rollovers. If somebody is interested in betting their alma mater or you know the hometown team to win it all, uh, why don't you explain what you would consider to be the optimal plan of attack? Absolutely. I know that you tweeted this out as well. We are both in lockstep on this. Rather than taking some sort of future like Gonzaga plus 300 to be able to win the NCAA tournament, insert your team here at like plus 600, plus 700, what have you. Instead, that $50, $100, whatever your standard unit is that you will be allocating to that future, you instead, you wind up placing that on the money line in game number one of the team that you think is going to win the NCAA tournament, and you just keep rolling it over and rolling it over. Now, in a case of like Gonzaga, if you wind up putting down $100 in round one, you're only going to be getting back like a dollar or two. It's not going to be a big payout when you wind up having them take down Georgia State because, well, if they wind up going down to Georgia State, you wouldn't have had any opportunity to be able to hedge that future anyway. So it would be just pretty much a washout regardless of it. But you wind up starting out with my hypothetical of $100. Let's say that you wind up getting a money line in which you're able to get $2 back on it. So now you're at $102 with Gonzaga. You wind up putting that $102 now on the money line in game number two. You're certainly going to be getting a little bit more value in that 8-9 matchup, regardless of who they wind up playing, whether that be Memphis, whether that be Boise State. Now, once again, it's not like you're going to be doubling up or anything like that in game number two, but now you've built yourself a little bit more equity. Now, maybe you're at like $120 going into the Sweet 16. You place that on the money line. Now the lines are going to be getting tighter and tighter unless if you wind up getting some calamity upsets. And typically when it comes to money line rollover, I find that the payout is either just as good, if not greater, because now you're able to shop the line with regards to money lines. And you'll notice that with money lines, there's going to be a little bit more variance with those rather than spreads, because typically with sides and totals, you're only going to find variance when things wind up getting hunkered down and locked in by about a half point. I mean, you could probably find anywhere between like in a spread of typically like five points, you'll be able to find like between five and five and a half, four and a half to five, something like that. So you'll be able to get a half point. But with money lines, you do have a little bit more volatility with those I've noticed because bookmakers, they do have various liabilities, especially in the futures market as well, which is why you do wind up seeing a little bit more variance with that regard. So you're able to shop the line with that regard. And something else that I think is really big with a rollover that really goes understated is that you don't have to continue to roll it over. Let's say that you're on Gonzaga. They wind up making it to the Elite Eight. Gonzaga, after their Sweet 16 win, they go on the roller coaster to celebrate. Everyone breaks every bone in their body to use the Todd reference. Well, now you probably don't want to be in on a Gonzaga team that now they've got a skeleton crew. Instead, you're able to say, you know what? I'm going to walk away from the table with my winnings. I can allocate this to other bets. I can just pocket the winnings. You can do whatever you want with it. Whereas with a future, you'd either need to hedge out or if in the case of Gonzaga, I mentioned a little bit earlier, you really probably wouldn't be able to hedge too much of anything on it or you'd just be pretty much stuck with a losing ticket. So I think that there's a lot of prongs that make a money line rollover just not only profitable, but also give you an extra layer of protection that you don't wind up getting when it comes to a normal futures bet. And I think we have a lot of alignment there. And to add some context to that Twitter thread that you mentioned, I shared it yesterday as we record this Tuesday afternoon, March 15th. Um, I got an interesting response uh, on that thread from pro bettors Julian Packer and Rob Pozzola with BetStamp, the bet tracker and odds comparison tool. And I was kind of surprised because Julian mentioned that he can find shopping futures to provide better edges at times. 
and that rolling over money lines is often akin to betting into efficient markets multiple times. And then when I kind of looped Rob into that conversation to see what he thought, because uh, I, I know Rob quite well, and, and I met Julian at the first bet bash as well. So wanted to kind of get their insight because I really respect what those guys do as pro bettors. Rob mentioned not feeling too passionate on the topic one way or the other and letting us know that he had placed four tournament futures once the brackets opened up, and he's fairly certain those will pay more than a money line rollover. And I will agree with him on a few points. Uh, this is not necessarily an absolute rule. Like everything, it depends. I tend to skew more toward most of the time the money line rollover is the way to go, but I don't want to be militant in that regard because sometimes, yeah, if you can find an outlier in an inefficient futures market, there can be plenty of value to be had there. It's not easy to get with the amount of hold that books take in, but it's not impossible. I just think those tend to be hard to find. And when you do find them, you often have to act fast. So when it comes to really sharp pro bettors like Julian and Rob, their futures are probably going to net a higher ROI over time than money line rollovers for a better like myself. That said, I think for the average better, if you're looking at money line rollovers or futures, the money line rollover will probably steer you in the right direction more often than not. Does that sound fair enough? Absolutely. And the one thing with money line rollovers that you need to rely upon as well is not having a complete and utter board breakdown as well. Because if you see all calamity breaking loose on the team that you wind up taking a future with, let's just say that you wind up betting on Kansas, for instance, you wind up having like Auburn go down to Jacksonville State, you wind up having Wisconsin go down to Colgate. So you're two and three seeds in the region. Now, all of a sudden, there's going to be a little bit less money line value in there just because you wind up having a lot of those teams knocked out as well. So that is a little bit of a part of it as well. If you do wind up having a bunch of upsets, you do wind up having the board break down a little bit. That can lessen the amount of money that you're able to get on the rollover. I like that point. Generally, if futures are going to have more value than the rollover, it's probably going to happen with some of the heavier favorites if they get a really favorable break. If somebody's looking toward, I don't know, maybe a three, four, five seed or even somebody higher to make a deep run, that's when the rollover probably offers more value. Again, none of these absolute rules, but I like that framework because, yeah, if a Kansas or Gonzaga just gets a really favorable draw, then even rolling over that money, you're not going to get a ton back. Um, it just might depend on what happens with other teams in those brackets. And speaking of brackets, I'd like to transition into that, I, I think just to tie a bow around totals, sides, and money line rollovers versus futures, one of my biggest takeaways from this conversation is um, when sides open up right after each round when the matchups are set, uh, just looking for discrepancies. Sometimes if you don't have time to do a ton, a ton of handicapping, you can still find some value. So just being aware, shopping lines, always something worth preaching. But this time of year, that's where some of the best value in this whole tournament can be found. So I'd like to underscore that point that you made earlier before we turn the page. And on that note, Greg, looking at brackets, I know that you did your Coast to Coast podcast the other day, walking through your entire bracket of integrity, as you call it. How would you describe your strategy when it comes to filling out your bracket each year? I think the biggest thing for me is not going too far off the reservation. Like if I think that a team has a little bit of a shot, but I'm not feeling too confident of them, I'm not going to force up an upset unless if I'm in a very upset minded bracket, because I was actually once in a pool in which you wound up getting the amount of points that the team was seated at. And then it wound up multiplying by two with every single round. So let's say that you wound up having the 14 seed Colgate be able to win the first round. That would be worth 14 points. 
If they wind up winning the next round, that's worth 28 points, so on and so forth. So I would just load up on underdogs and I would just wreck shop every single time because I was in there with a bunch of high school friends, most of which are not necessarily looking too much at college basketball. They're picking all one seeds in an upset-oriented bracket, and I'm just like, what are you guys doing? I can hit like 50% here and I can wind up winning it very easily. So I do think that the actual bracket that you're in is important because with most like ESPN, their standard, you wind up getting 10 points with regards to every first round pick that you wind up getting correct. 20 for the next round, 40, so on and so forth. That's a traditional one. You want to be just going with the teams that you actually think are going to win and you want to hit your final four picks as well. If you are going to take a little bit of a gamble, you probably want to have maybe a three, four, five seed that you don't think is going to make to the, to the Sweet 16 anyway, maybe going out in the a round or two earlier than you expect, rather than trying to just go for it with regards to some Final Four team that they need absolutely everything humanly possible to break right. So I mean, I really do pick based on what I believe is going to happen with regards to the bracket. And with that said, I did wind up having a couple upsets this season because I do think that this is a wide open tournament. I think that with this year in college basketball, it very much is dependent on the matchups. I don't think that you necessarily have one bulletproof team. And I only wound up having one team in my final four that is a one seed in Kansas just because I felt like they got a rather favorable draw. And it's not because I'm trying to be contrarian. It's not because I'm looking to avoid chalk or anything like that. It's just because I think that the matchups for a lot of these top teams did not necessarily go the best for them. As you walk through that, I'm reminded, I'm glad you touched on scoring settings because I was in a pool, my freshman year of college was when George Mason made its magical run. And that was just a standard pool where there were no upset points. I don't know what I was thinking. I had them going to the (laughs) Elite Eight. And then suddenly I found myself going from the biggest George Mason fan to heavily rooting against them. I believe they upset UConn in the Elite Eight to advance to the Final Four. Okay, great. I knew you would have that answer. But that was tough because I suddenly found myself rooting against George Mason because I believe UConn was my champ. And that was just such a roller coaster. I was wondering, what did I do to myself? And if I were in a pool with upset points, you know, that could have kind of sealed the deal before the tournament even progressed beyond the Elite Eight. But if you're picking upsets just for fun, keep in mind that if that ride's going to come to an end, just as a fan, you know, that, that emotional roller coaster might be a bit taxing. And knowing your scoring settings can really be the one of the most optimal things to putting yourself in a good position. And I wanted to tie that in with your bracket. Not going to spoil anything. People can catch coast-to-coast hoops for your full bracket breakdown if they want to hear that. Um, you did have teams like UConn and UCLA going farther than most. I think that's pretty safe yeah. to say. And how does that factor in? Again, I know the the bracket of integrity standpoint, just having one kind of bracket of record out there, I can appreciate that approach. But I've also got to think if you're in a smaller pool or a pool where upset points aren't a factor, that has to probably change the calculus with teams like UConn or UCLA. Uh, But feel free to push back on me if I'm wrong there, because you certainly know those teams quite well. This is a bracket that I'm going to be using for every single normal pool. If you wind up having upset points, then I would wind up changing it up just a tad. But I really do think that UConn matches up very well with so many teams. I think that they match up very well with Gonzaga. UCLA is going up against, in my opinion, the weakest one seed in Baylor, a team that is without their top rebounder, Jonathan Chamachachua. 
and Miles Johnson is doing a better job down low for a UCLA team that I feel like got a little bit underseated. I was a little bit surprised to see them on the four line. I think that you're getting a little bit of value there with them because I felt like they were probably going to be on the three seed line and said they wind up getting a four. And I do think that that is something important to take a look at as well. You want to be taking a look at teams that you feel like, all right, maybe they wind up getting a good draw. Maybe they wind up getting a bad draw. And then you're able to take a look from there. I mean, it's no surprise that we wind up seeing some of these upset picks like a lot of people are throwing out their South Dakota State. And on the betting board, you're finding them as we're recording this right around a two-point underdog. So I do think that that is something that is important to take note of. And I think the biggest thing is when it comes to your normal bracket, just pick it how you think it's exactly going to go. And especially like you mentioned in a smaller pool as well, because if you're in a pool of like 15 guys, it odds are you're probably not going to have all 15 guys wind up having the same bracket. If you're in with like several thousand people, if you're in the ESPN thing with like a million brackets, there might be one that winds up mirroring yours, but what's the worst thing in the world if you wind up splitting the money as well? Because I mean, it's better to split money than get none whatsoever. Fair enough. I was going to ask you about Gonzaga is the number one overall seed, what you thought of their draw. Maybe it's finally their year, but I think you gave a pretty indicative answer when you talked about how you think UConn could match up quite well with them. Uh, so not focusing too much on Gonzaga, but maybe some of the top challengers, this could be quite the wide open tournament. What do you think of you know some of the teams that could be next in line behind Gonzaga uh, that could be ready to really capitalize should the Bulldogs stumble at any point? I think what is going to be really intriguing this tournament is if Arizona is able to get back Kirk Risa, because I mentioned a few minutes ago, the fact that he wound up posting up there on social media, a picture of his injured leg. And I mean, it looked really, really bad. You saw it like shades of purple in there. That is not what you want to see to say the least. And it's a Arizona team that is still relatively deep. Even Adama Ball was able to step up in the Pac-12 tournament and look very solid. You've got Dallin Terry, who's one of the ultimate Swiss army knife guards in this entire NCAA tournament. I like what he's able to bring to the table. But at the same time, you want to be taking note of that injury. And I mean, if Kirk Carissa winds up playing at all, you can't think that he's going to be 100%. So that's a little bit of an issue. The reason why I do like Kansas, I did wind up putting them in my final four, is the exact opposite. We're talking about the health of Arizona. How about Remy Martin, a guy that averaged 19 points per game last season at Arizona State, guy that was banged up for much of conference play, coming out and looking very solid in the last two games of the Big 12 tournament, a tournament in which Kansas was able to win. They were able to cover all those games in the Big 12 tournament. He was able to give the team double figures in those final two games. That really speaks to me. And Kansas coming in, playing some of their best defense of the season, fewer than 70 points allowed in their last four games, doing a better job on the glass. I think that they're going to be very intriguing. And I mean, I mentioned it with the other number one seed, Baylor. They come in banged up as well. Jonathan Chalmachachua, leading rebounder, uh, the fold, LJ Cryer, their top scorer in terms of points per game, has really played once over last month and a half. He gave it a go about a month ago. He did not look 100%, so they shut him down even further. So I feel like there are quite a few one seeds that have a lot of question marks, but I feel like some of those answer question marks are there with Kansas as well, which is why I'm feeling a little bit more warm about them. Maybe pivoting from KU to UK, I heard you go on covering the spread with uh, last week's Props and a Hops guest, Ed Fang, a co-host of that show, and he mentioned Kentucky being your safest bet to make the Sweet 16. Now that we have the brackets out in front of us, are you still feeling that way? And if so, is there anything you're able to do from a betting standpoint to get some action down on that notion? 
Absolutely. I do think that Kentucky is going to be able to make a run into the second week of the NCAA tournament. I do not have them as my champion, but I just felt like this was going to be a team in which they were going to match up really well with so many of these mid-major teams that we would be able to find. Now, I don't know if I would necessarily want action on them to be able to make a final four or not. So this is going to be a situation which I wind up betting Kentucky game by game because I even take a look at their spread against St. Peter's and I feel like St. Peter's is being given a little bit of short shrift because they are a team that's in the top 20 in all of college basketball regards to points allowed on a per-possession basis. Casey Undefu, their main big man, he actually led all of college basketball in terms of blocks per game. So I would actually argue that among the mid-majors, they are one of the teams that match up the best with Kentucky. With that said, I think the biggest thing to do is to just wind up betting this game by game because they're a team that I don't necessarily think that they're going to be able to make the final four. I think that UCLA is a team that matches up very well with them. But with that said, I feel very secure about Kentucky being able to make the second week of the tournament. I'll let you know right now, I've got Kentucky making the Elite Eight in my bracket. So that's going to be really the approach to me. I'm not really going to be going out and betting any features or anything like that. But I do think that game to game, they are going to have some relatively solid value when they do wind up playing that winner of Murray State versus San Francisco because I think both of those teams are going to have a tough time with Oscar Sheboy. All right, so we've talked not just Gonzaga, but their top challengers could be the likes of UConn, UCLA, Kentucky, all the other one seeds, Arizona, Kansas, and Baylor. What about some potential bracket busters? Is there anybody who is pretty high on the seed line who you're trying to keep a safe distance from? With regards to teams I think could be able to pull an upset, South Dakota State is a team that I did wind up putting in my Sweet 16. I just felt like Providence is a team that, if you take a look at it on Kempom, this has been noted quite a bit, luckiest team in all of college basketball this season. And you just take a look at Providence teams. They're certainly a solid team. And I do think that there is something to the clutch gene. I do think that there is something to the notion of you do wind up making your own luck. But I also go back to this as well. If you're someone that you wind up driving in rush hour traffic every single day, there are certain drivers that they know how to be able to navigate that traffic a little bit better. They know how to be able to get to work on time a little bit better than others. But at the same time, if you keep cutting it close every single day, even if you're the world's greatest driver, you might wind up running into an unfortunate car accident because you have more congestion on the roads. You wind up going into a day in which it's a little bit more congested than you wind up thinking as well. And I think of that way with Providence as well, a team that they've been cutting it close a lot with regards to driving in traffic. They're good at driving in traffic, but you want to be avoiding cutting it close to the last minute, if at all humanly possible. And now you wind up drawing the number one team with regards to points scored on a per possession basis. The only team that shoots above 40 and a half percent from three point range. And I mentioned nobody else shoots more than 40 and a half percent from three. South Dakota State, they shoot 45% from three point range. So they are better than every other team in the country by a wide country mile. So I think that that's a big giant issue for them. South Dakota State, a top 20 team in all of college basketball in terms of scoring points on the fast break. Providence, a bottom 25 team at being able to guard the fast break as well. So, I mean, it's just all sorts of matchup issues. And then I take a look at Illinois, and I think that there's a lot of vulnerability here as well. This is from a tweet that was put out by Cooper Watson of Bussing Brackets. When Andre Cabello plays 20 or more minutes for Illinois, they are 3-6 and six straight up. When he winds up playing fewer than 20 minutes, they are 6-2 and two straight up. And then when he winds up not playing at all, Illinois has won 13-1 and one this year. I think that really speaks to how he hasn't necessarily done the world's greatest job with this Illinois team. They've been dealing with a little bit of an injury to Jacob Granderson. And then you've got a Chattanooga team that they've got one of the best 
players that it not is not just in a mid-major conference, but is one of the best players in all of college basketball, Malachi Smith of Chattanooga. 29 points, six rebounds, three assists, shoots 40% from three. Silvio De Sosa, you may remember him, the guy that picked up the chair several years ago from that Kansas versus Kansas State brawl. He's a guy that is now playing down low for Chattanooga. So if there's someone that's not going to be afraid of Kofi Coburn, it's a guy that wound up busting out a chair literally in a game and trying to hit someone with it. So that is absolutely hilarious right there. But I do like this Chattanooga team to be able to knock off Illinois in round one of the tournament. One of the metrics you touched on when making your case for a possible high seed making a bit of a run, South Dakota's three-point shooting, uh, just you know, a country mile ahead of the rest of the nation, as you put it. And I think everybody can agree that there is an element of skill to shooting three-pointers. That said, when I think of a team like South Dakota State shooting that high of a percentage or defensively guarding the 3A team like Houston, holding opponents to less than 30%, knowing the college basketball average hovers right around 34%, it seems like there's very little correlation from what I gather to how a team shoots three-pointers over the course of a season. If South Dakota is running hot, they might be due for a bit of a cold stretch. If Houston's three-point defense is running hot, they might be due for some negative regression from their opposition. How much do you attribute uh, three-point offense or defense for some of these teams that could be poised for a deep run um, to being skill with regard to what they can do from behind the arc offensively and defensively? Or how much of it do you think is randomness that while it's tough to say when it could regress, um, it could be due for regression over the course of a tournament that's going to take six wins for any team to cut down the nets at the end of the day. I think the big thing is actually looking at box scores and trying to identify, oh, did they wind up having a bunch of like seven for 12 nights or something like that, where they're north of 50% and then a bunch of nights where they're south of 25%. So you're trying to see, is this an actual constant or is this something in which it's up and down, up and down, up and down. And with South Dakota State, it's been a relative constant. And I think that that's very important actually doing the legwork, taking a look at some of these box scores, because there are some of these teams that are very, very streaky, trying to be able to find consistency. Very hard to do with 18 to 23-year-olds, but that was something that I wanted doing with South Dakota State, just taking a look at their games from a night-in and night-out basis, them being 40-plus percent nearly every single time out, aside from they wound up having one game against North Dakota State, and that was just because North Dakota State just took away the arc entirely they did not allow them to shoot any threes they still wound up getting the job done because they do a solid job in transition so that is something that i want to taking a look at as well but i think that it's just really important to take a look at some of these box scores and take a look okay is this something that they are doing on a night in and night out basis or is it one of these things in which they go from like one to 12 one night and then they wind up going like 10 to 15 the next night and i think that that is really the biggest thing to take a look at when it comes to three-point shooting defense and offense I think on that note, we've done about all we can for the big dance, but that's not all there is. There's also the NIT, the College Basketball Invitational, the College Basketball Classic, and odds are if there's value to be had anywhere in the college basketball world, you're putting in the work to be able to offer that insight. Uh, So just maybe, you know, in 30 seconds or a minute for people looking to these second, third tier tournaments, how would you describe your approach to trying to uncover any actionable angles there may be? I think a big thing is recognizing that with a lot of these lesser tournaments, aside from the CBI, these are true home court games. Like something that I wanted taking on Tuesday was Colorado against St. Bonaventure. St. Bonaventure had to travel from Olean, New York. They did not know that they were going to get the game until like Sunday night. And then they have to travel for a Tuesday game in Colorado. They go through multiple time zones. Game winds up having an 8 o'clock p.m. Pacific tip. That's 11 
p.m. Eastern time. So that is just a big, giant issue for a team. So I think that taking a look at tough travel spots is something that is very important with regards to the NIT. And you also want to be gauging just coaches in general. There are some coaches that they do a great job of being able to motivate their guys. Like I was on Oregon on Tuesday night. I have no idea how it turned out yet. We are doing this before the game was played. But, I mean, it seems like Dana Altman time and time again always winds up getting his guys up for these sorts of games. And then you've got other teams that you just don't know if they're going to be motivated, like a Florida who wanted letting go of their head coach literally, or if they didn't let him go, Mike White wanted taking the Georgia job literally days before the NIT. So I think that that's very important to take a look at. As you talk about the body clock, it reminds me of another football parallel. One of my favorite angles, I think flies under the radar every year. It seems like betters are obsessed with West coast teams flying East and kicking off early but I think at this point that's been baked into the number and then some for quite some time. But something that seems to fly under the radar a bit could be East Coast teams playing in prime time, whether they're home or away, that body clock. If they're kicking off at 8 p.m. and it's maybe approaching midnight in the late stages, a West Coast team might be a lot fresher. Um, and seeing how that kind of ang- angle can also apply to a betting market that might, might be a whole lot less efficient than the NFL. So definitely some good food for a thought there. And um, I've got one more college basketball question for you, Greg, before we make sure to weave in the hops here. Uh, And this question might involve uh, the hops a bit as well to an extent. Um, I would like to weave in what I like to call the Malinsky Minute on this podcast, a nod to the late, great sports betting legend, David Malinsky, who I was honored to call friend and a mentor. And there's a clip that resurfaces uh, from your recent colleague, Polly Howard, every year, um, this was from a March 7th, 2018 interview Dave did on Follow the Money with Polly and Mitch. And Dave basically made the point this time of year as a tip to any up-and-coming betters: Eat clean, eat healthy. This is not a time for chicken wings and beer. And I'll put a link to that clip in the show notes because it is pure gold the way that Dave delivers it and the way that Mitch and Polly are reacting in real time. I realize it might sound like blasphemy for a podcast with hops in the title to endorse an angle like that, maybe staying away from beers. But... There's a time and place for everything. And from your standpoint, when it comes to things like diet and exercise, I understand that you run 12 miles a day every single day at a fever pitch of betting activity like this. How do you stay alert during the betting frenzy that is March Madness when the first five minutes after the games hit the board each day could be one of the most important cycles you're going to come across? I think the important thing is just knowing your schedule as well, knowing when, all right, I'm going to take a run here because openers, they're going to be coming out in the early hours for the college basketball classic games, the NIT games, just after we wind up seeing the field of 64 wind up getting set with regards to the first four games wrapping up. Here's one we can expect the opener to come out. I think that that is very important. And to your point as well, I do think that eating clean is something that is very important as well because you pretty much are, for lack of a better term, a little bit of a machine. You are sort of what you wind up putting in is what you get out of your body. And I'm someone that I eat a lot of like chicken breasts. I wind up eating a lot of steamed vegetables, things of this nature. So I actually do wholeheartedly remember Dave Malinsky doing that because I think I was actually producing that show What he wound up actually mentioning that because he used to join VEASAN every single day back the day is passing was very very tragic happened a few years ago but I mean I do think that there is something to you get out what you wind up putting in so I am right there with them and I think that it is very true knowing that there's a time and place to be able to have a couple brews at the same time there's a time and place in which you need to have your body just not have any alcohol in it at the time 
And as we hit the home stretch, when the time does come to enjoy some brews, I know when I came on a VEASAN hit with you and we let off with your Wisconsin roots, talking some new Glarus, uh, that just set a great tone for the whole conversation. Um, I'd love to get a little more insight from you as we wrap this up. How would you describe yourself as a beer drinker and what would you say uh, would get your nod for some of the best local craft beer in Las Vegas? I'm one that I actually like a little bit of heavier beers. I'm a little bit more of a dark guy that likes them with a little bit more alcohol by volume. Like one that I want trying at Big Dogs, it's a little bit more of a brew pub. They've got a lot of good Wisconsin food out here. I want trying their Wonder Dog a couple weeks ago. It's an IPA triple. It's like 10.5% alcohol by volume. Absolutely tremendous. I wound up getting a 10 ounce of that. It was just very, very rich. You could really taste a lot of good flavor notes in there. That was something that I absolutely love. I always love their leg lifter. That is one that's a little bit lighter, but it's always one that winds up getting the job done. It's more like your, I guess you'd call it American light lager. It's more like a 4% alcohol by volume. So what you're going to find in your generic Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light, what have you. But those are two that I wanted trying very recently that I absolutely love. I'm a little bit more of a dark guy. When I need something light, I wind up going over two big dogs. I wind up being able to get that beer in me as well. But I'm one of those people that I'm always down for trying some of these heavier beers, trying to get like eight or 10 ounces of something that's like 10, 11% alcohol by volume, because sometimes those could be some really good, rich beers. All right, I'm going to make a note of that because I picked something up this past weekend from a brewery in Southern California that's a triple IPA powerhouse by the name of Monkish. I'm going to see if I might be able to sneak any cans out to Vegas with me for Bet Bash and maybe slide one your way. So uh, I I will make a note to plan accordingly on that front. And Greg, before we sign off here, I want to make sure to plug your work so people know where they can follow you. If they're not doing so already, which a lot of the people hearing this probably are, but in case you're one of the few who isn't, on Twitter, at GUnit underscore 81. On VEASAN, the Greg Peterson Experience, Fridays and Saturdays, 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. Eastern. Also, Betting the Bracket. And, of course, the Coast to Coast Hoops podcast, part of the VEASAN family of podcasts. Greg, is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? I think you covered it all. You did a great job there at GUnit underscore D1 on Twitter. If anything else winds up ever coming about, it's where I post up the daily spreadsheet with my handicap of all the games as well. So you did a great job of being able to cover all the bases there. Awesome. Well, I will tell people if they follow you, you're one of the more engaging, responsive people who really knows what he's talking about. So can't endorse that highly enough to wrap this up. Greg, once again, thank you for your time and insight. And I will make sure to carve out some time to connect properly in person when I'm in town for Bet Bash. I cannot wait. I look forward to it. And it's going to be a great next few weeks before then. Thank you so much for having me today. Goodbye. Thanks again to Greg. And thank you for listening. If you found any value in our conversation, the number one way you can support Props and Hops is to take a quick moment to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you'd be interested in even more podcasts to inform your March Madness betting approach, go ahead and check out the Dimers Podcast Network at dimers.com podcasts to optimize your gambling content consumption. All right, that'll do it. I'll talk to you again next week. Until then, best of luck with your college basketball bets and brackets, and as always, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well.